Welcome to Weird Studies, an art and philosophy podcast with hosts Phil Ford and J.F. Martel. For more episodes and to support the podcast, go to weirdstudies.com. The idea for today's episode comes from a a line from Philip K. Dick's Exegesis, where he writes, um, the symbols of the divine first reveal themselves at the trash stratum. And we've touched on this idea. Actually, I hate to be an asshole, but it's not from the Exegesis. It's from Vallis. It's not from the Exegesis? Oh, Well, okay. okay. I'm being that guy who's like, well, actually, (laughs) what an asshole. Like Castrop with Kierkegaard. (laughs) (laughs) exactly that is exactly what i was thinking Uh, (laughs) we're we're just gonna leave our listeners in the dark on that one anyway uh that hardly seems worth it to have interrupted your flow actually there's a story i kind of got into this i was looking through the exegesis there's actually something very cool that you can do you can go to amazon if you have an account and use the search within this book function i guess if you have the ebook version of the exegesis it would work the same way but if you do just plug in the word trash and look at all of the occurrences of trash or trash stratum this idea of trash develops throughout the you know eight odd years of entries that are excerpted in that anthology of the exegesis i think where it might have started was actually stanislav lem this is a callback to our two-part tarkovsky discussion stanislav lem was the science fiction writer soviet science fiction writer who wrote solaris which is uh, an amazing novel i encourage people to read it and tarkovsky did an adaptation of it as uh, in a film Meh. uh huh Meh. <laughs> is that your feeling about lem no, about uh, the Solaris, the film, <laughs> compared to the, oh, okay. compared to the novel. <laughs> Go uh, on. But anyway, Lem was always very, he's a very highbrow science fiction writer who advertised his loathing of almost all sci-fi. And he wrote sometime, I think maybe in the 60s, that Philip K. Dick was something like the only science fiction writer in America who he had any respect for. And he said something like that Philip K. Dick is himself like a figure in a, I don't think Lem used the term trash stratum, but uh, he's a figure that emerges from the trash stratum of American culture to create something that's really quite special, which I think is something that a lot of commentators on Dick have said. Dick himself, as you can imagine, like if somebody said that about you, I like, how am I supposed to take that? Thanks, I guess. Dick sort of resented a little bit Lem's old world condescension to the pulp genre of science fiction. But he also kind of identified with it and he starts talking more and more about this motif of things that are unexpectedly, mysteriously, and miraculously glowing with significance and radiant meaning that emerge from the lowest trash of the gutter. And that's an expression Dick uses all the time in the exodesis, trash in the gutter. Eventually, he develops an idea of Christianity as being the philosophy, 
of trash in the gutter, of God being with the trash in the gutter. Now, of course, there's a lot of Christianity that would find that idea rather appalling, and keep in mind that Dick is working with a very Gnostic idea of Christianity. But for him, Jesus himself, the very principle of Christ's mission is to discover the godliness of the trash in the gutter, the fact that his mission extended to the poor and the outcast and the most abject of society. Christ's mission is itself to discern the divine in the trash stratum. At least that's how Dick came to see it. And then in Vallis, which in a way is a kind of compendium of ideas from the exegesis, he actually, that's where he comes out with that line, which is a kind of refinement on an idea that he presents many times in the exegesis, right. that the symbols of the divine appear first at the trash stratum. Sorry, that is a long and rather pedantic uh, no, aside. No, but it, I think it tells it, but I, I go into it because I think it tells an interesting tale about Dick's own development as a thinker. Absolutely. And uh, his his Gnostic conception of trash is important here, and that, you, that what you just brought up, because this is a very popular Gnostic idea that the light of the divine is trapped in the garbage of matter, and that the Gnostic's job is to illuminate him or herself, and then to bring out the light of the divine that is trapped in matter. This is the idea of tikkun in, in uh, Kabbalah, right? Jew hmm. Jewish mysticism. And it's uh, an idea, I believe, in many Gnostic sects in the ancient world, that somehow matter occludes the light of the divine, and our job is to go and free it, to see it. And this is an idea, of course, that exists in India, with the Aghori sadhus, you know, the holy men who they live in the charnel grounds, and they, they practice cannibalism, and they, they basically live in the refuse, and what other people discard and ignore and are afraid of and are disgusted by because their theory, their idea is that Shiva is everywhere. The God is everything. And therefore, if you can't see God in a pile of, you know, rotting human, let's say like human entrails. Like a corpse. Yeah. Or, yeah. or like just like a colon strewn across a desert landscape. If you can't see God in that and in the flies that are devouring it and the maggots, you've already failed. <laughs> You're yeah. seeing just your own idea of God. So they, they practice this form of mysticism, which I don't believe is recognized officially by Orthodox Hinduism, but they practice this mysticism. And as a result of this, they're seen by people in India, by the, you know, the common folk, uh, as having um, magical powers because of this, because they expose themselves to what others reject. There's a line in the New Testament that we've mentioned before, the, the stone that the builders have rejected is the cornerstone. Right. So right. the idea, and, and there's a very clear, um, if you want to psychologize this, there's a very clear psychological reason why there's a lot of truth to that. It's that since every epistemic model that we come up with is necessarily limited, the reality is coming at us from sectors that we can't see or that we don't acknowledge as having value or meaning. And the person who's able to go in what is ignored by most is the one who's going to find what is of value in that area, in that darkness. So that it's always at the periphery of, our, of the zone of open cognition. It's always on the peripheries of that area, of that zone, that you'll find the new thing, what needs to be seen, the thing that's happening that you're not aware of and that could threaten the tribe or whatever. There's, it's a dictum you could apply to almost any situation, right? What you don't know... Mm -hmm could hurt you 
and therefore you want to go and investigate in the areas that other people aren't paying attention to. Or in your own life, you want to pay attention to the areas that you neglect in your own life or in your own mind because that's where the, the problems lie or the challenges or the dangers or the, or the, the promises, right? I don't actually know that much about Kabbalism, or I don't know anything more than the kind of Reader's Digest version of Crowley's version of Kabbalism, which I know Orthodox Kabbalists view with disdain, or at least I have heard disdain expressed for it. But my understanding of Crowley's idea of Kabbalah, the system of numerology that he employs in building the tarot, so his commentary on the tarot, the Book of Thoth, which I think is a masterpiece, and the deck uh, associated with it, which was a collaboration with between him and an artist named Frida Harris. In the companion volume in the Book of Thoth, which explains the many, many, many symbols that appear in the Thoth tarot deck, Crowley has a passage where he's talking about tens, like the ten cards. So, for listeners who don't know the tarot at all, it's worth mentioning that the structure of the tarot is a little different from the ordinary playing card structure. If you think about just a deck of 52 bicycle cards and you're going to play Old Fish. Old Fish, for fuck's sake. Old Maid or Go Fish. Old Fish um, is a great game. I love Old Fish. <laughs> okay. So you have the 52 cards of the playing card deck and they're in four suits. You have that also in the tarot. Instead of clubs, diamonds, hearts, and whatever the fourth one is, spades, uh, you have four suits in the tarot. It's rods, cups, swords, and discs, or pentacles, it's sometimes called. And you have, you know, the ace of pentacles, the two of pentacles, the three of pentacles, and so on, all the way down to ten. Yeah. Sorry. And for those of you who know the tarot, this is boring as shit, I realize, but... I'm trying to get through all this stuff. And by the way, also in the tarot, if you know nothing about the tarot, there's also court cards. You have face cards and 22 cards that aren't numbered. They're not part of a suit. And those are the major arcana, but I'm not talking about those. So in the Book of Thoth, Crowley has separate little essays, short essays on each number. So the four aces, the four twos, the four threes, and so on. And he's thinking about the quality of for example, and he's talking about the four tens, he's thinking about that quality of tenness. And he's thinking about it largely in Kabbalistic terms, or his ideas about the meanings of these numbers and what their characteristic energies are, all has to do with his reading of Kabbalah. So in his essay on the four tens, what he's saying is, well, when we get to the tens, the corresponding uh, what is it, Sephira or Sephirot? Sephiroth. Uh, Sephirot. Yeah. Sephiroth. Sephiroth. Uh, Sephiroth um, sounds better. Do it. <laughs> okay. Yeah. I'm gonna. We're, let's pretend we know what we're talking about. Uh, the there's ten Sephiroth. They're like little. I don't know. They look like Christmas tree balls on what's called the tree of life, and the bottom one, the very lowest one, is called Malkuth, which is, it symbolizes the earth. And that's the realm of earthly formation. And the idea of the tree of life, as I understand it, is that at the very top, the crown, the first Sephiroth is Kether. And that represents the uncreated, a pure, formless potentiality as yet completely unrealized in any way, in any plane, earthly, astral, or otherwise. 
And then as you descend from Kepler through all of the subsequent safari, each one is symbolizes a planet or a different heavenly body. There are many, 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 many associations with each of these. And when you get down to the very bottom, things have come into manifestation, but as they come into manifestation, they gain mass and solidity, but they also become slow and clotted. It becomes more and more ponderous until when you get to the very end of this chain of manifestation, as you descend from the unmanifest down to the completely manifested, Malkut, the earth, matter becomes completely inert and stupid and dead. And so from a straightforward point of view, that represents a decline, right? You know, Kether is beautiful and wonderful. It's Godhead. It's the divine. And Earth is shit. It's the turd that's been crapped out by this cosmic process by which things come into manifestation. The only thing about it is, though, there's a weird way in which, at least, again, this is my understanding, there's a medieval chanson that has this line, in my end is my beginning, and in my beginning is my end. There's a sense in which when you get all the way down to the bottom of manifestation, you skip back up to the top. Somehow at the end of the process is included the seeds of the beginning of the whole process. And so you get down into, you know, what is the kind of cosmic trash stratum. And it is precisely there that the possibility of regeneration and therefore of, you know, the universe continuing to exist and the process starting all over again. It's precisely in the earth that that possibility is to be found. So it is, the earth is simultaneously the most fallen and the most exalted of conditions. But this is all by way of preparation or telling you some things you might need to know to understand the passage that I'm about to read out. And this is from Crowley's Book of Thoth. By the way, I'm reading only part of it. He's talking about, you know, the Ten of Wands, which is called oppression. And as he says, this is what happens when one uses force, force, and nothing else but force all the time. So if you think about the suit of wands as being a suit of human will, creativity perhaps, but also the exertion of power, then by the time you get to the 10 of that suit, then it's just the dull, stupid, tyrannical imposition of force with no consciousness of anything else being possible, right? Likewise, the 10 of cups is satiety. So cups represents human emotion, feeling, which includes our capacity for experiencing pleasure. So that when you get down to the 10 of cups, you're lolling around in a in a, in a haze of sex and drugs and rock and roll, just lying around in your stained undergarments with an empty bottle of Corona, <laughs> you know, and just like imagine some kind of decadent rock star sort of situation, right? That's uh, the Ten of Cups. That's the situation I'm in right now. <laughs> yeah uh me too um but anyway so then he gets to um he gets to the ten of discs this is the very last card in the whole deck right it's the last card of the last suit this process of descent also happens through the four suits of the tarot so the ten of discs is the last card this is what crowley writes about this particular rather privileged, special place in this cycle of descent and regeneration. He says, the Ten of Discs is called wealth. Here again is written this constantly recurring doctrine, that as soon as one gets to the bottom, one finds oneself at the top, and wealth is given to Mercury and Virgo, 
there's a lot of astrology in this, which I'm not going to try and explain because I don't understand it. Um, he says, when wealth accumulates beyond a certain point, it must either become completely inert and cease to be wealth or call in the aid of intelligence to use it rightly. This must necessarily happen in spheres which have nothing whatsoever to do with material possessions as such. In this way, Carnegie establishes a library. Rockefeller endows research simply because there is nothing else to do. Now, I love that example because it's actually a very concrete, very straightforward illustration of a principle we've already talked about, the principle of enantiodromia or reversal, the idea that any energy, any process, any thing, when fully pushed to its furthest development, when it becomes the most itself. Imagine, you know, somebody who is so fiercely right-wing, they become weirdly leftist, or somebody who is so furiously left-wing, they become weirdly conservative. You know, these are commonplace examples of how things can reverse into their opposite. And here, Crowley is giving us a really beautiful example that it pertains to this particular idea of the trash stratum, of something redemptive emerging from the most unredeemed of strata. You know, wealth pushed to its furthest extent ceases to become wealth at all. Like, if I just hoard wealth, like Fafner and Fafner's ring cycle, I'm just a, like a dragon sitting on a mountain of gold. I'm not making any use of it. At which point, wealth becomes shit. There's a sense in which money, when it slows down to the point where it becomes so inert, you're not spending it anymore. It simply becomes just like a mound of shit that you're, you're sitting on. And Crowley's point here is that the only thing left to do is to use the money for something that has nothing whatsoever to do with money as such, like, for example, endowing a library or building the Metropolitan Opera or whatever, things that the captains of industry of old did. And in this way, you create, say, a university or a library, and that feeds the beginning of the next cycle. It liberates things from the frozen stupidity of pure materiality and allows things to start releasing again. So this idea that stuff, thingness, you know, malkut, manifestation, pushed to its ultimate degree, becomes its opposite. That seems to be a kind of a neat way to get at this idea of the trash stratum and the symbols of the divine appearing at the trash stratum. two types of Gnosticism. What you just articulated there is, um, let's call it a kind of monistic Gnosticism, which is that Earth is already redeemed. And it's just a matter mm -hmm. of recognizing the codependency of the bough of the tree of life and then the, the roots of it, like they're connected. But there's another, there's a dualistic Gnosticism that really 
in, insists on a duality of matter versus spirit. The Manichees believe that matter is evil and spirit is good. So I like your nuance there or the, your insistence on, on the cyclical nature of it, the enantiodromia, the way the one becomes the other. And there's this kind of wheel uh, involved in that. Yeah. So that's cool. That's right. Um, so trash in this in this Gnostic sense, trash is what is what doesn't move anymore, what is still, what is stagnant, what isn't rising anymore, or at least it seems not to until you redeem it, until you start using your money in some spiritually productive way. And then all of a sudden, the whole process of wealth accumulation justifies itself to a certain degree in this practice of philanthropy or altruism. That's kind of what Crowley's saying, is not? Yeah. I mean, I don't know if he's making some kind of global comment about the rightness of capitalism, but that could be one thing you could take from it. Yeah. Nothing can be judged in that sense because the belief it needs to, to mean that in a certain way, because if it doesn't redeem all forms of wealth, as long as wealth transmutes into spiritually productive activity, then the the pattern needs to apply at every level or it doesn't apply at all, right, in a certain sense. But that's totally beside the point. Um, the These two types of, of trash, okay? Philip K. Dick was writing about how the new thing, the thing that's needed, is always in an area of life, of society, that is neglected. That's where things... And he was writing in the pulp idiom, in a scene, a literary scene that had no recognition during his lifetime. It basically started to gain a bit of cred towards the end of his life. And now, um, I mean, Lovecraft and Philip K. Dick are seen as phenomenal artists and they're studied in universities and whatnot. So there's been a kind of an antiodromia on that level. And um, Absolutely. And, and uh, there's, a, there's a thing in, in Philip K. Dick also, this belief that it's in the noise that you'll find the signal, right? It's in the chaos that mm -hmm. you'll find the new order, in madness that you'll find sanity. He has this one quote, I believe this is from the exegesis, the madman speaks the moral of the peace, right? The truth that we need appears mad and insane from our vantage point until we can enter into it and then it can shape, form a new order, a new order of being. So, but... I was thinking about it. There's there's two types of trash. Uh, there's one trash we might call garbage and another one we might call filth. Or I thought filth at first and I thought maybe waste was a better name for it. Like, I'm just talking about trash at the most literal level. There's trash that's, there's stuff that means nothing anymore or that has no value and therefore is considered trash. We chuck it to the curb. We well, something that has been evacuated. Right. Like an old... Like a milk carton. Well, we took the milk out of it, so now we throw the carton away. Or it can be a piece of culture, like... Think of the James Cameron film Avatar, which was, like, everybody's favorite shit when it came out. And who watches that film now? Yeah. It's been evacuated of whatever it was that was made it so exciting when it first came out. Exactly. It's been used up. It's been used up, yeah. So its value needs to be redeemed. And trash is always an epistemological or epistemic thing. It's always, according to me, this is trash, right? Like if I have an old clock that's just been lying in my garage for 10 years and I, I haven't used it, and as it accumulates dust and it, it just looks more and more like a piece of garbage and one day I just chuck it. But then, of course, some mm -hmm. antique collector comes by and sees it and he grabs it. And it's worth you know, right. tens of thousands of dollars or whatever. Right. Um, but then you have filth, which is 
ontological trash, all right, or at least appears to be ontological to us, like like excrement, or like uh, rotting food, or um, corpses. Corpses. To return to that, right? And that's different. That triggers the disgust response, and it's a biological thing. Jonathan Haidt has worked on this a lot, and he's associated a keen sense of disgust or a keen disgust reflex with conservative values. So people who react very strongly to disgusting things tend to be conservatives in their political beliefs. He's got a whole theory as to why that is, but it's just an interesting correlation, whatever it means, if it even exists. But uh, the, the idea is that there are certain things that are just trash in and of themselves. Yeah, I just thought that was an important distinction because we can easily understand how we can find things of value in garbage, the first kind of trash. One person's garbage is another person's treasure. That People throw away things not knowing their real value or their potential oh, yeah, value. yeah, all the time. So, yeah. yeah. So, so gar- and, you know, pieces of art can be reevaluated. It's not beyond belief that there will be some future film, a James Cameron film festival where Avatar will be subjected to a critical reappraisal and people will discover virtues in it that are completely invisible to us. Although if that happens, that would be probably the weirdest thing that we've ever talked about <laughs> yeah. on this show. Um, but it could happen, is what I'm saying. But that's not the second kind you're talking yeah. about. Filth. I do love that. It's calling it yeah. filth. That's awesome. Filth is what has no value. In fact, it's significant only to the extent that it's dangerous, right? Which is why we have a biological, like a, an, an instinctive reaction to it. And But that's the stuff the Agoris seek out in India. That's the stuff where yes. you need to go and find God. That's... That's what you need to love if you're not going to fall into some kind of dualism. Right. So the difference between the monist and the dualist version of trash is the monist sees everything, even, uh, you know, tuberculosis, bacilli. Like they can look at everything and see God peeking back out at them. Whereas the dualist is maintaining this distinction between stuff that is potentially touched by the divine and stuff which is what i guess completely outside the orbit of the divine yeah, well that's is that's, that what we're saying that seems to be i mean the monist would even have to see god in atrocities right in right. absolute in violence in cruelty yes. um it's it's like a zero-sum thing right um and in fact that very rationalization has been used by a kind of an authoritarian strain of Zen Buddhism to justify the war atrocities of Imperial Japan, which you can read about in Zen at War by Brian Victoria. So this is a mystical argument that is open to great abuse that really can be used to turn angels into devils. This monism, if you really take that to a certain place, you can justify any atrocity. Yeah. And myself, personally, I would tend to say that Dick's dictum, the symbols of the divine first appear, the trash stratum, is talking about garbage. It's talking about artifacts, cultural artifacts or or physical wastelands that have not yet been tapped. You know, they used to call anything that was untilled, like in the Middle Ages, wastelands were just unused land, like forests, beautiful rainforests were wastelands because they didn't have any purpose or meaning. They were just they were just dangerous. And the people who lived in the wastelands were uh, outcasts, criminals, brigands, that sort of thing. So they were dangerous places Uh, and also orcs and goblins, of course. 
And the odd Taoist right, scholar. Right, the, the odd hermit. But I think that Philip K. Dick, like in my work, I've thought a lot about how the garbage stratum holds all kinds of untapped or unrealized jewels, right? There are things that have inherent value whose value we, we can't see because of our limited occluded perspective, because of the veil of ideology or the veil of, of episteme. Right? No, I get it. But I mean, it sounds as if you are saying, but there is some stuff which is and will forever be outside of that. And that's what you're calling Phil. That's what I'm wondering about. Because this is interesting, because I think that this lands us back at a distinction between the way you tend to approach questions and the way I tend to approach them. I think that I am a reformed monist. I'm a monist that is sort of learning how to be a pluralist. And I think that you're, I don't know what you are, but I think that for me, there's an effort involved in trying to think of things in a, in a pluralistic way to think, for example, that you can have some things that are garbage and some things that are filth and never the twain shall meet. To me, those, if you posit opposites, those opposites, they never remain distinct from one another. They always get involved with one another. And so let me give you an example of what I'm talking about. Dick's favorite term for the trash in the gutter is the beer can. That's always what he imagines, the beer can in the gutter. In fact, in Vallis, okay, so Vallis is about Philip K. Dick, basically. It's about a series of inexplicable theophanic experiences that he has, except he puts this in the life of a character he projects from himself named Horse Lover Fat. Horse Lover Fat, by the way, is simply a way of translating Philip Dick. Um, Philip means lover of horses, and Dick means fat, right? Um, so it's an alter ego of Dick himself. And so, you know, horse lover fat has these crazy experiences and all his friends think he's nuts. They just humor him until, spoiler, they go to see a movie called Vallis. And Vallis is full of symbols that are directly lifted from horse lover fat's weird theophanic experiences. And this freaks everybody out, including the arch skeptic Kevin who is the first one who notices all these connections between the film they see, Vallis, and Horse Lover Fat's experiences. And one of the one of those symbols is like this um the satellite that becomes a symbol for this godlike entity that is beaming information and energy into Philip K. Dick slash Horse Lover Fat's head that's rendered as a satellite. And the satellite is pictured in the film Vallis, the film that's a story within the story of Vallis, as a beer can in the road. And so it's like, this is the principle of God rendered as a piece of trash in the gutter, a beer can. So to get back to this question of disgust, okay, if you find a beer can in the gutter, it's all dented up and silted up, it's, you know... It's a trash, it's a beer can that's been sitting out for a couple of months. Are you going to drink out of that? Fuck no. It's disgusting. Like, a beer can in the gutter is disgusting. It should trigger the disgust reflex in any healthy person. I mean, drinking out of a beer can you just find lying around in the gutter sounds like something that one of those Indian mystics you were describing would do, right? As a way of, like, coming closer to God. There's a reason why Dick chooses that image. And yet, you know, you can also say, well, beer can, it's just this tidy little this piece of stamped metal. That's garbage because, like, I could dust it off and, uh, 
you know, maybe keep it off to one side for about a thousand years and hell, you could put it in a museum, right? But I'm tr what I'm trying to say is that the same figure, the same object, and it doesn't do to be too literal. So like, just understand that the beer can is a figure for something. The beer can contains aspect of what you're characterizing as both garbage and yep. trash. And I've got another example from my life, very recent example. Last weekend, I was in Montreal and Delphine, my daughter, she's seven. She loves uh, churches. She loves to visit churches. She really digs uh, religion. <laughs> so she uh, she wanted to see St. Joseph's Oratory. So we went back there and we saw St. Andre, who's the founder of that basilica. It's a beautiful place in Montreal. It's an absolutely fantastic church. And they've kept St. Andre's heart in a kind of glass container, uh, an ornate kind of glass. Uh, what's the word? Is reliquary yeah, the word? A reliquary, for right. Here? So they've kept his heart as a relic, yeah. and you can see this human heart. So if I were to find a human heart in the gutter, uh, that would be very disgusting. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and there's something disgusting about the relic, the shriveled heart that's kept there at the church, and that pilgrims go and say their orisons to this relic. And I think that that practice of relics in Catholicism. And this kind of like bold, uh, and they don't always hide the relics. Often they're just on display. That's an. Can you actually see the heart? You can actually see the heart. Yeah. Does it look like a piece of beef jerky or something? It, it's behind. It's the, the the glass is smoky, so you can just make out it's it's white, and uh, it's small. It has shrunk over time, but it's there. Anyway, sorry, you were going to say something else. That's obviously an attempt to uh, transcend that boundary between garbage and filth in fact between gold and lead or or spirit and matter or whatever it's the idea that right. that this body part this organ is resplendent with the divine right that's the idea of the relic that you can actually invite miracles into your life by praying to this relic praying before this relic not to it but before it so yeah i i agree that the category is like all categories they're uh they wobble and they bleed into each other, but that doesn't mean they're useless. Um, oh, no, yeah. certainly not. Um, but from a practical point of view, I mean, there is a practical question, which is, do I embrace the trash of the gutter? Do I embrace the filth of the gutter? Like, what do I do as a person who wants to become a better person if I'm on some sort of spiritual path? Or even if you don't like the word spiritual and you don't like the word path, leaving that aside and just say, like, I'm a person with curiosity about ultimate things in the world. Well, if you're a person with curiosity about the ultimate nature of things in the world, you're going to wonder how you can end up with a world that has astonishingly beautiful things and astonishingly ugly things. How can you have a world that has both the Ukraine famine and box B minor mass right. at the same time, right? Right. And the question that is immediately going to occur to you is, is there a connection between these things? And if so, what? Like, how do you make a connection between things of different substance? And this is the philosophical objection to dualism, is if you posit mind and matter as separate substances, well, how do they get into one another? How can they talk to one another? Right. You know, this is always one of the biggest arguments for idealism is that every attempt to make dualism work as a cosmic system, you keep having to create kind of ad hoc extensions that would allow these two different substances to interact with one another. But 
but it doesn't really work. You have to posit an underlying unity or potential unity between things for things to have any mutual intelligibility or correspondence. Yeah. There's a great scene in uh, Robertson Davies' novel, The Rebel Angels. I think it's The Rebel Angels. It's that trilogy anyways, where uh, it takes place at the campus of, it's a fictional version of U of T, uh, University of Toronto. Uh, there's a scientist on campus who specializes in shit, in excrement, and is absolutely fascinated with excrement. And another character at one point visits his laboratory and asks the scientist, well, what is, what's with the shit, man? Like, really? That's what you've devoted your life to? And then he shows, the scientist shows this character a, he puts the shit under a microscope and lets the character look at it. And it's all these colorful crystals and stuff. And basically the scientist's insight is that a lot of these things is so dependent on your point of view, your perspective. Like if you were to turn into a shit fly right now, a pile of dog shit would turn into this like... A sumptuous feast. A sumptuous feast. Filth is always apparently ontological because it can't be ontologically filth because it's always a matter of perspective. If you are a microscopic creature and you enter into the world that is a pile of excrement, you'll be in a world of colorful crystals and um, mm. its its own little universe, its own little like kaleidoscopic uh, wonderland. So, mm. yeah, so uh, ultimately I do agree with you. You know, when you think about it, the genre of horror is predicated on the idea of filth, on the idea of something that is cosmically wrong. Right. Or at least certain kinds of horror, like what people call cosmic horror. What I always get from Lovecraft is a sense that these um, these evil old ones, these... these uh, Great old ones. Yeah, the, that these things are not just, you know, their badness is not just a matter of perspective. Like, it doesn't matter what scale you're looking at, it doesn't matter what kind of organism you are, these things are inherently inimical to the order of existence that we share with all other life. You see right. what I'm saying? Yeah. Now, whether or not that's an argument for the existence of that kind of thing, I, I, I wouldn't care to say. But at the very least, the imagination of cosmic horror is really opened up, made possible by the idea of unregenerate trash, of, of things that cannot be redeemed, for which things that lie outside of that cosmic cycle of regeneration that, for Crowley, the tarot deck symbolizes and indeed enacts. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I'm so glad. Which you, when you? Oh, I'm sorry. I'm I'm so glad you brought that up because, well, I mean, a, a listener just wrote us asking that we do a show on Thomas Ligotti, which I hope we'll do one day. But there is mm. a there is a story Ligotti wrote. Thomas Ligotti is a fantastic writer of weird fiction who is still working today. His output is meager, but I recommend it to any, anyone. And uh, he's often described as the kind of inheritor of. Lovecraft, but I find that his vision and Lovecraft's are not the same at all. Um, well, frankly, I think Lagotti's a better writer than Lovecraft, but I realize yes. that's a heretical thing to say. Yeah, well, that's your opinion. That's just like your opinion, man. Uh, but I, I, I agree. I think Lagotti is, in my assessment, Lagotti is one of the top 10 writers working in English today. So um, Lagotti wrote a very short story in his collection, Noctuary, called The Order of Illusion which speaks rather directly to today's theme. So I wanted to read a little excerpt of it. 
And just by way of background, this is a story about a man who was a member of a mystery cult, a mystery cult involving, you know, he lists the various accoutrements of this cult, the mask with seven eyes, the idol of moons, the ceremony called the night of the night. And he paints this picture of this ornate kind of Baroque mystery cult that is involved in some kind of demon worship or worship of the night of darkness. But the protagonist becomes dissatisfied with the rites and the metaphysical system upheld by this sect. He wants a sect that would place itself at eye level with things, a sect whose metaphysical beliefs don't belong to some other world, some abstract other world, but to this world. So he leaves the sect and he creates his own sect, a solitary one, he describes it. And I'll just read two paragraphs from this story, which contains kind of the metaphysical drive of it. He set out to locate a site of worship, a place abandoned, old, isolated, and decayed. Actually, there were many such places to choose from, and by a completely arbitrary means of selection, he soon managed to settle on one of them. This numinous structure, bashed in roof and battered walls, he cluttered with the fetishes of his new creed. These consisted of anything he could find, which had a divine aura of disuse, hopelessness, disintegration, of grotesque imbecility and senselessness. Dolls with broken faces he put on display in corners and upon crumbling pedestals. Thin, lifeless trees he dug up whole from their natural graves and transplanted into the cracked tiles of the floor's mosaic. Then he hung lamps of thick green glass by corroded chains from the ceiling, and the withered branches of the trees were bathed in hues of mold, as were the faces of the dolls and those of various mummified creatures, including two human abortions, which he set floating in jars at opposite ends of an altar draped with rags. His vestments were also of rags, their frayed edges fluttering like dead leaves about the fall. Standing before the altar, he raised his arms over something that smoldered, which was his own dried excrement upon a tarnished plate. He glanced about at the defunct forest of which he was king, at the brittle twisting branches, some of which were adorned with hanging dolls and other things, at all the various objects of refuse he had added to his collection. And finally he widened his mouth to speak, and he said nothing. So distracted was he, with a gruesome contentment, that his old wonder had been ravaged, and his hunger for mockery fulfilled. And this is the second paragraph is where it gets kind of interesting. Oh, that was the boring bit that we just heard. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> just plot exposition. Yeah. Okay. This is awesome, by the way. Absolutely love this passage you're reading. Continue. Yeah. Okay. On it goes. But this contentment did not last. How could it? Illusion throws its invisible shimmer over all things, no matter what level of debasement they have struggled to win. Whatever may appear, sooner or later, will appear in greatness. Thus, gradually, the pathetic, lusterless world he had made and labored to make low had rebelliously elevated itself beyond its surface of decrepitude and assumed a kind of grandeur in his eyes. The naked limbs of what had once been trees and now were empty objects, hollow abstractions mocked by the sarcastic verdure of the green lamps, underwent transfiguration to inherit the suppleness of all symbols and the dignity of a dream. Each of the disfigured dolls, vile and insane mimics of the human nightmare, gave up their evil and revealed themselves as the protectors of countless inexpressible mysteries and myriad secret enchantments. And the precocious corpses upon the altar no longer drifted about pointlessly, embalmed in their wombs of foggy glass, but hovered serenely in becalmed fathoms of infinite wonder. And 
and it goes on. And by the end of the story, holy shit, bro, that's yeah. amazing. Yeah, such writing, such writing. Like who writes like that today? Yeah. Anyway, the, continue. Yeah, as you were saying, at the end of the story, he becomes disillusioned with that because that failed. Because he finds the same transcendence in the trash that he did before, so he returns to his cult expecting nothing, and they greet him as their high priest. And then he wears the masks with seven eyes and he leads the rite called the Knight of the Night. And he is absolutely wrapped in wonder again. Okay, well, now I really wish I'd read that story before we recorded because that sounds, not only does is it incredibly written and, and imaginative, but I think from at least my understanding of the story as you've rendered it, really profound. Profound to me at any rate. It speaks to me of something. And I mean, perhaps Ligotti would laugh aloud if he heard somebody finding a moving spiritual principle in one of his fiendish contraptions of thought and expression. He's one of those people whose stories, it reminds me of Borges or Kafka for that matter, their stories seem as much contraptions as they do stories. Do you know what I mean? Oh, yeah. They're like devices for doing something or devices for having a certain kind of gnosis or thought. The principle that this speaks of to me is the idea that um, I'm gonna I'm gonna make it personal. I'm gonna talk about depression. I have made no secret of the fact that you know I've been diagnosed with major depressive disorder, and what it means in practical terms is that every few years I have depressive episodes that can be quite crippling. And I wrote a longish essay about depression a while ago, which we should probably put in the show notes that expresses, you know, a lot of what I have to say on the topic, and I'm going to try not to rehash. But my experience of depression was like, of the most recent and longest, and certainly the, the harshest episode that I've had to deal with, had a particular trajectory, which was, you know, I spent years in pursuit of a kind of spiritual ideal. This has to do with my background as as a Zen Buddhist, as a practicing meditator, as somebody who at one point for a period of years, I was like very, very serious about that and kind of chasing something, which if you, if you know really much of anything about like Zen Buddhism, you know that that's kind of a bad sign if you're chasing something, if you want something. If, you, uh, if you're hungering for some kind of illumination or some kind of truth or some kind of understanding, like that's a problem. And it's not like I didn't know that intellectually at the time, but these things are sneaky. You know, kick something out the front door, sometimes it'll come sneaking in through the back door uh, or it'll come in at the window. And I thought I had expelled a kind of lust for attainment or a lust for self-transformation but I was wrong. 
Um, it had just sort of secreted itself all the more sneakily and ignorably somewhere deeper inside. I emphasize, I think I've gone over some of this maybe in the Dogen episode. You know, this is not me talking about Zen Buddhism as a practice and talking about its shortcomings. This is me talking about my shortcomings as a practitioner. I found myself going down a path that I think is not uncommon for particularly Western practitioners of Zen Buddhism. Uh, A kind of thing where as much as you might tell yourself that you are thoroughly intimate with the things of this world, that there is nothing hidden, there is no transcendence, there is no nothing beyond this, but this right here is perfectly marvelous. Like this right here is enough. That to me is a profound principle. And it would have been nice if I could have really lived up to that, but I didn't. And I got myself in a little bit of a jam because I was yearning for you know, the emptiness side of the form is emptiness and emptiness is form equation. Uh, and if you haven't read or listened to our Dogen episode, I just uh, quoted the Heart Sutra, which is the, uh, I don't know, the mission statement of Mahayana Buddhism, right? Um, and I realized that I had come to seek a cure for the human condition. Something I said a while ago, if you're a thinking person at all, if you've got your eyes open at all, sooner or later you're going to ask how in the same world do we have the Ukrainian famine and box being a minor mess? How do you have these good things and bad things existing at the same time? And if they exist at the same time, do they have something to do with one another? If they don't, if there are two separate principles of good and evil working through the material world, then how did that come to be? Yeah, right? Then from here you start having questions about God and the universe and so on. Um, I had, on some level that I was not quite able to acknowledge, I sought in a kind of monism, an almost Deepak Chopra-esque monism, some higher way to subsume, to gather up and take in and transcend all the broken shards of existence. And the consolation there in my mind and in the mind, I think, of many practitioners is the higher unity, which you could call it emptiness. And you might say, well, it's not really a unity. It's not one, it's not two, it's not nothing. It's beyond description. Fine, 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 but you know, these mysteriously wrong little ideas can sneak into your head without you noticing it, right? And on some level, I was buying into an all-encompassing oneness that would somehow redeem, would pay for the Ukrainian famine or like any horror that you care to propose. The problem with that is that then you are ill at ease in the world as it actually presents itself to you. You know, you can see all of the big, dumb, noisy, nauseating, stupid, irritating aspects of existence. You know, Donald Trump on TV or whatever, and just be like, ugh, fuck that. Or you can put it in Buddhist speak and say, oh, that's so samsaric, right? And you can discount it. You can discount things on the level of appearances. Or you can tell yourself, well, Donald Trump makes sense on some level, on a higher level, because all is emptiness, right? Donald Trump is perfectly empty. 
Well, there, I made myself feel better. But the thing is that that is a cheap consolation, and it's a little bit degenerate because you're allowing yourself to do exactly what you probably shouldn't be doing if you're a Zen Buddhist, which is saying, stop the world I want to get off. Get me out of here. Get me out of this crazy place. And when I came crashing down, one of the things I realized is that this metaphysics that I had been allowing to grow in my mind, this kind of... I think, perversion somewhat of what Buddhism really is. When I came to a certain awareness, I realized that I had allowed myself to deal myself out of human existence. And yeah. that and that I had left myself with a metaphysics that gave me no protection whatsoever from the hard winds and storms of my mental illness. I thought I did. I thought I had been laying in uh, supplies but actually I'd left myself open to the winds of the hurricane and uh, blew my house down flat. Mm. And I remember in the midst of depression, which if you've ever been depressed, you know what I'm talking about. It feels like it takes approximately a thousand years to walk like a couple of blocks. I remember walking home and being like, oh, it's so far. And just like mm. the same pitiful half handful of thoughts revolving futilely in my brain until suddenly like a shaft of light split through my befuddled mind. I said, there is no cure for the human condition. And I know that's not an original expression. It's been said many times by many people in many different contexts. But it just hit me with the force of a a thunderclap. There is no cure for the human condition. To get back to the Ligotti story, if if you turn your back, as I did at that moment, I turned my back on this idea of transcendence, on the idea of get me out of here. And I resolved to be resolutely in the world as it presents itself to me, that I knew somehow that I would never be well again if I couldn't just deal with the world as it presents itself and find a way still to find love and meaning in it. I'm sorry, I realize I'm totally oversharing here. But the thing about that is, and the mysterious thing, and the truly marvelous thing, is, you know, give it a few years. Here I am a few years later, and I've been well for a good long time now. And I've been in the the world of the, the 10,000 things, like dealing with the fallen, broken, fragmentary, filthy condition of things. And by God, that ineffable mystery, that love, that significance, whatever you want to call it, God or the great Punta or whatever, that's a little Philip K. Dick joke. Whatever you want to call it, it's still there in amongst all the broken, partial, filthy, fragmentary parts of the world. And that being there does not negate them as the broken, partial, filthy, fragmentary things of the world. It affirms them in that condition. Do you see what I'm saying? Oh yeah, I see what you're saying. It's so strange to me. Ligotti has this reputation of being this arch nihilist. I mean, he, nobody really knows that much about him, apparently. I mean, I sure don't. But he's a sort of a recluse, or at least he keeps himself to himself. And so I, I, I don't have a mental image of him, but if I do, that image is rolling its eyes at all this gooby shit that I'm saying right now. 
Like, I can't imagine that this is exactly what he had in mind when he wrote that story. And yet, to me, this story, as you rendered it, is just a shockingly spiritual story. Like, just a powerful assertion of what is most true and meaningful and valuable to me. Weird as shit, and perhaps a illustration of you know, what Dick is on about that, you know, the pearl of great price, whatever that is, you know, the meaningful thing can be found anywhere, even in the works of an avowed nihilist. Yeah. Um, I wrote a whole essay about Ligotti that's arguing precisely that, that there is, in as much as what he creates are works of art, they necessarily affirm existence because art, according to my own beliefs, art, in itself is the affirmation of existence. And therefore, art can transform shit into gold. This copy of Noctuary that I read from was given to me by Ligotti. And he wrote a little note uh, in the, on the title page. He wrote to J.F. Martel, the search for and failure to find redemption in order of illusion. And that's the story I just read from. This related to the conversation we were having at the time because I was, I had the good fortune of having a very intense but short correspondence with Ligotti uh, several years ago. And he wrote that as a kind of joke, I believe. But at the same time, I think it affirms what you're just, your interpretation is that it's one of those paradoxes in giving up the search for redemption. The world is redeemed. Yup. Yeah. Um, yep, this exactly. is something, yeah. And Nietzsche, Nietzsche talks about this in The Birth of Tragedy. He says, he says it differently, but I think that one can interpret it to mean something like that. Uh, he says, the world is justified aesthetically, you know, that the world as the, at the aesthetic level is justified. And what he, what he means is that once judgment becomes contingent, and judgment doesn't pretend to be outside the world and able to know the good from the bad or filth from garbage or filth from gold, for that matter. Then things appear in a certain light. This doesn't mean you have to approve of everything. It just means that you can accept that the world is the way it is and that a pile of shit seen from the right perspective at the right scale can appear to be a, a very wonderful thing, like a a crystalline world of light and color and yeah but it, but again there's that careful distinction we need to make between the aesthetic vision and the moral vision um there's because a way they're in not which the same they're not the same these are paradoxes within paradoxes i have my own experience of turning shit into gold for myself at least in my 20s i had a, a long bout of really serious intense hypochondria I had panic attacks. It was a really bad time for me. Um, mm. And the way that I cured myself, this was literally a cure. I never had a panic attack after this. I made a film making fun of myself. I started to write down my thoughts. It starts with uh, the line, it's cancer. This time it's got to be. And it, it's just this <laughs> long, it's a 10-page monologue that I dramatized with a, a really talented actor friend of mine, and we put him on a black set, and he learned this 10-page monologue by heart. It was a, an incredible feat. Of course, it's to be expected from an actor, but uh, I was impressed. Uh, and it was all, and then we filmed it on a black set, and we had 
all kinds of cool little practical effects going on. I think it was a pretty successful film. Unfortunately, it was done on mini DV, so it's unwatchable today. But by by doing that, this I think is another key to Ligotti and to the whole idea of trash and, and filth and all that, is that it was humor that did it. And I know that sounds trite. Um, Not at all. But it was about it was the next time I started having a panic attack after I made that film. I was unable not to think of the film and unable to see myself as ridiculous. There's something when you're having a panic attack, <laughs> when you when you start having anxiety, you are taking yourself so fucking seriously at that moment. Like you think it's like, oh, I'm going to die. I'm going to die. It's like, yeah, you're going to die. Like, so what? <laughs> Just let it. And it's it. that's how I was able to transcend that neurosis. It was by seeing my own contingency, seeing how. Even matters of life and death are ultimately not matters of life and death. On some other level, they're just part of this mysterious drama that we're participating in, that we're involved in. This comedy, divine comedy, in a sense. And um, that's... You know what? I'm I'm going to... My interpretation of the story you just told me Mm -hmm. is that the thing that does the trick is not actually even the fact that you're able to deflate yourself every time you have a panic attack because you know like you know in the wrong hands or put the wrong way that would sound like oh just get over yourself right which is a kind of thing that non-depressed people are always telling depressed people which is really fucking yeah irritating. Yeah, yeah but that is not what i take you actually to be saying or what i take to be the moral of the story it seems to me that the moral of the story is this artistic creation that it's expression of this thing that it's not that you deflated it that you actually turned this piece of trash or even filth in your soul like you made that into you performed an alchemical transmutation of that into gold right i think that's and true that, and 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 through an artistic process the fact that it's funny and the fact that it gives you a chuckle when you think of it and that that deflates the egoic component of a panic attack is i think secondary i totally agree i would i totally agree with that i would never have been able to laugh off a panic attack before i made that film that's what made it possible to do it herman melville said art is the objectification of feeling and what happens when you objectify a feeling well you take something that manifests as private as locked within you and you turn it into something that's out there in the world you turn it into you you detach yourself from the feeling and you're able to look at the feeling after that like it's a thing and in doing that that's where i think the alchemy happens what language does is it liberates flows of subjective experience and and allows them to become public to get out in the world, to it breaks the boundary between yourself and the other. It allows for this flow of inexpressible forces between people. The reason you make art, one, one of the reasons, is to communicate something that your current language won't allow you to do. Either because the experience you want to communicate is too specific, so that by using commonplace words, you'd be betraying it, you'd be losing it, because there's no one word or one phrase that can really capture the singularity of what you're experiencing or because you're experiencing something that hasn't been experienced yet and therefore the language does not exist yet to express this thing. And my feeling is that 
all great artworks come out of something like that, that there are attempts to express what so far has remained inexpressible or what is inexpressible because it's too specific, too singular. And, but by doing that, and this is the, the, the therapeutic side effect of art, is that it heals. It allows healing to occur. It allows humor to occur. It allows one to look at oneself from a new perspective and to look at others from a new perspective. And this is something art's always done. You know, you know, like you, you, when you read Othello, Iago, this villainous character, well, he's villainous within the diegetic context of the story. But as part of this wonderful tragedy that is Othello, he is good. He is, he is redeemed. He is justified. His presence makes sense. He makes everything else possible, right? Like he makes there, the tragedy possible. He makes the tra- he makes the aesthetic magic possible, and mm-hmm. I think that's kind of what Nietzsche is getting at when he says the world is justi- justified aesthetically. Now, there's a very yeah. dangerous interpretation of that. You know, Hitler's interpretation of that was very dangerous. And again, we can't conflate the moral and the aesthetic. I think that right. they both need to exist because Hitler envisioned the world as an aesthetic drama, and his quest to. Um, and here I agree with theorists who say a, that Hitler... A, a, a drama with a cast of millions and all of them with blonde hair, blue eyes, and white faces. Yeah, but I, I go further with some theorists who've said that Hitler never wanted to win the war. Hitler yeah, wanted, I agree. Yeah, Hit, so what Hitler, he wanted was Goethe Dameron. Yeah. What he wanted was to burn the world as part of this, uh, what he conceived to be this, this, this tragic drama that he was involved in. And then Germany, all of Germany was involved in living out. There's a very dangerous interpretation of that, and there's always that that separation that needs to be kept in mind. Art, in a sense, is innately alchemical in that it is the ongoing and the transformation of filth into gold. You know, of you know, of, I have my own yeah. sort of take on that. Um, some of the ideas, in fact, perhaps many of the ideas that we're playing with are ideas that are so out of fashion in mainstream intellectual life that it's almost comical. I mean, we're actually on a meta level performing trash straight and we're taking trashy ideas that people laugh at, ideas that have been out of fashion for decades, and we're trying to find some value in them. And I would like to think we are finding value in them. And one of those trash ideas is the healing power of art. That's such a creaky, bourgeois, uh, sort of moralizing platitude. What's good about art? Oh, it's good for you, right? Right. So, you know, go to the ballet and go to the symphony, and it'll make you a little bit less of a knuckle-dragging, slope-browed homunculus, right? You'll, You'll bathe in the healing powers of art and become, you know, the right sort of person. This is an idea that people have been making fun of for Decades. I mean, it's one of the major things that modernists like to make fun of, the idea that art has some kind of redemptive value or that there's a healing power of art. And yet what we're talking about is is that, the idea that there is some dimension of art that is capable of healing. And I can tell you that it can. It can have this power. I don't think it does in a regular way. I think that you can't plan it. You can't make it part of the curriculum. I'm, I don't believe that you can justify, say, an arts program in a school no. by appealing to the healing power of art because it seems to me that every moment of healing is a miracle 
in the sense that it's a singularity. Yes. It is something unique and true for that specific individual. And I feel like you can't generalize from those occasions. And let me give you another story. And this links together both like depression, me talking about maybe oversharing on depression and the healing power of art and also stalker. So when we're recording this episode, this is the same week that we released the second part of our stalker episode. So there's a detail in stalker that we didn't talk about. Writer, professor, and the stalker have all arrived at the threshold of the room. And stalker is telling writer and professor earnestly how they can prepare themselves to go into the room. And he says, think of the past, become very quiet. I forget exactly what it says, but something to the effect of become very quiet and meditate on the past. A man becomes kinder when he thinks of the past. And writer furiously disputes that and they get in a fight. Get back to 2013. So, you know, the just laden curtain of depression descended on me at the end of the summer in 2013. And, you know, I sort of, I don't know, I had a hard time that fall. And I was a very long way from digging my way out. Um, it so happened that the opera Parsifal, Richard Wagner's last opera and a piece that has tremendous importance, a very great meaning to me, which I'm not going to get into, but suffice it to say, Parsifal is a big piece for me, big work. And it's more than just a beautiful piece of music. It's a, it's a piece of art that I feel in some way that I can't quite define speaks to me. So happens that Chicago Lyric Opera was putting on a production of Parsifal, and I planned to go up and attend it. And then I remember tornadoes. The weekend it was supposed to happen, there were tornadoes, like a line of ferocious storms blowing through the Midwest. And suddenly, like, it was dangerous for me to drive up. So I had to take the mega bus, which is awful. I mean, it's a really cheap way to get between cities, but it's just nasty. It's kind of an... Not the, the most glamorous way to travel, put it that way. And I encountered all kinds of weird fucking challenges and problems on this trip, but I finally made it to the opera, and I'm sitting there. And I'm sitting there waiting for the curtain to go up, and I'm miserable. I'm like, I'm, 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 I'm eight different kinds of fucked up. You know, <laughs> I've made it to this opera, but I'm just like a trembling, shivering wreck. And I realize that, you know, I'm waiting for the curtain to go up, and... I am in a position analogous to writer and professor. I've lost hope. And I'm sitting on the threshold of a room, a zone, in the sense that we've talked about zone, right? An artwork is a zone. Parsifal is a zone. Oh my God, is it ever a zone? In all the ways that we've discussed. And I'm sitting on the threshold of it. I'm, you know, 10 minutes away from the curtain rising. And I'm just sitting there. And I think about what the stalker says, that to enter the room, you have to do certain acts. It's almost like a magical ceremony or purifications before a rite or something. And I decide that I'm going to take that seriously. I, by the way, had just taught stalker in a class. And so I sit there and I think of the past. And I let my memory of the past make me kinder. You know, I let it sort of soften me a little. And then the curtain goes up. 
And what happens for the next four hours is I enter the zone. And what's my ultimate wish? What is the wish that I have? What I want above all is healing. And I didn't get any kind of permanent healing. I feel like it would be too pat for me to say, I walked out of there and I was all better. Right? That's actually not what happened. It took another couple of years before I really got this thing under control. I had to go through a lot of different steps and stages to do it. And even so, to talk about getting it under control, I always feel I have to say, for now. But that was the event that put my first faltering step on the path towards healing. That I did get better, at least for a while. I, I walked out of that theater feeling the way people describe themselves as feeling like after confession, like scrubbed clean. For some reason, I'm reminded of um, that film, The Shawshank Redemption, mm, which has yeah. one terrific image at the end where Andy Dufresne attains freedom by crawling like he finds his way into a, a sewer pipe. And he, uh, sorry, spoiler alert, but like, uh, you know, as the narrator of the film says, he crawls a mile through shit and comes out clean. And that's what it felt. It felt like some kind of astonishing alchemical transformation of the shit in my soul into gold. And how did that happen? Because I entered this zone. What happened in the zone? I can't tell you. It's a mystery, as much of a mystery to me as it is going to be to anybody listening to the story. The healing power of art is not that it has certain propositional meanings. For example, you know, Parsifal is about compassion and redemption. And, oh, well, that's very uplifting. And so if you meditate on that, you'll be a better person. That's not what I'm saying. It's actually much more mysterious. The agency or the power of the artwork is akin to that of the zone. We don't know what it is. We don't know where it came from. Yeah, sure, Wagner wrote it, but that doesn't answer anything. We don't know what it's for. We don't know if it is for anything. We don't know if it's human. We don't know anything about it. But I know that when I entered that zone, the transformation took place. And that is all I know. Consider subscribing to Weird Studies on iTunes, Stitcher, or another podcast service. You can also find us on Twitter. Music for the podcast is composed and performed by Pierre-Yves Martel. Thank you for listening. <laughs>